I think that while it's better than nothing, it doesn't go far enough. And we're going to still see school shootings and other mass shootings until further action is taken. Um, I'm hoping that it proves to be more effectual than I think it might be. I'd like to be wrong. But in the meantime, I think that we're going to need more. President Biden recently signed the most significant gun measure to clear Congress in nearly three decades. It includes $750 million to help states implement and run crisis intervention programs, including red flag programs. It also goes after individuals who sell guns as their primary source of income but haven't registered as a federally licensed arms dealer. And it earmarks funding for mental health services and school security. The bill also addresses a longtime concern of domestic violence activists, the boyfriend loophole. According to the FBI and CDC, more than a thousand women are killed by an intimate partner every year in the U.S. Half of those relationships are dating partners, yet the majority of states haven't closed the loophole. And what does that mean? Well, it means that people who are convicted, convicted of domestic abuse could still go out and get a gun. That was Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota speaking to NPR. Advocates have long pushed to change the law and include partners who are unmarried and without children. After the break, we discuss how much impact the change in the law will have. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We're discussing the bipartisan gun bill and a measure hoping to address domestic violence. Joining us to talk about this is April Zioli. She's an associate professor of criminal justice at Michigan State University. She's also an expert on policy interventions for firearm use and intimate partner violence. Professor Zioli, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Jeff Temple. He's a licensed psychologist and the founding director of the Center for Violence Prevention at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Professor Temple, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. And Desiree Kennedy. She's a professor of law at the Toro University Law School. She's also a co-author of the seminal treatise on New York domestic violence law. Professor Kennedy, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And just a quick note, we will be talking about domestic violence and homicide. If you or someone you know needs support, you can always call the Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. That's 800-799-7233. Professor Zioli, first put this problem into context for us. How often are guns involved in abuse between partners? There's a nationally representative survey that looked at this issue, and it found that 3.4% of domestic violence incidents involve guns. 3.4 doesn't sound like a lot, but when you do the math, it's 32,900 events a year in which an abusive intimate partner threatens or uses a gun against their other partner. Professor Temple, do we know what percentage of domestic violence homicides are committed using firearms? Yeah, so about half of domestic violence uh, homicides are uh, are involved use of a firearm, and I would actually extend what Dr. Zioli said, and it's it's the mere presence of a firearm is also uh, escalates the situation, and and we know you know I've talked with women who say, you know, after we get in an argument, he that's when he decides to clean his gun, so it's mm-hmm. it's it's just the mere presence of it as well. 
Professor Kennedy, what did the law say about what types of abusive partners can purchase firearms? So the types of abusive partners uh, that could purchase firearms uh, were those who uh, were not considered to be spouses, present or former, cohabitants, or having a child in common. So essentially people who are dating or had a casual relationship um, would be able to still purchase firearms even though convicted of a domestic violence crime. Professor Zioli, would this law apply to dating partners convicted of abuse in the past, or would this only apply to those convicted after this measure takes effect? This will only apply to those convicted after the measure takes effect. And it only that prohibition on purchase and possession of firearms lasts for five years for these dating partners. So if they haven't committed a crime or been convicted of a crime, in the five years after they got that domestic domestic violence misdemeanor conviction, they will get their gun rights back. As we mentioned, domestic violence advocates have been trying to get this loophole closed for more than a decade. Professor Temple, why has this taken so long? Well, it, it shouldn't have. So it's been part of the uh, VAWA legislation, Violence Against Women Act. Or it's been we've we've tried. Uh, we heard from Amy Klobuchar; she tried previously, and Republicans have blocked it, worrying that uh, uh, you, you know, voiced from the NRA and others that it's it's one step closer to taking away your guns. And and you know, I, I that's their argument. But if you look at the data, what Dr. Zioli mentioned, uh, women in the U.S. are I don't know twenty times more likely to be killed by a gun than women in our peer countries. Professor Zioli, you've done research around firearm restrictions and and partner homicide. Tell us what you found. I found that these firearm restrictions for domestic violence uh, abusers do reduce homicide. So the laws that say that a person who's under a domestic violence restraining order can't have a firearm is associated with reductions in homicides in the states that have those laws. The law that we're talking about right now is the federal misdemeanor domestic violence conviction firearm restriction. And that law is also associated with a reduction in intimate partner homicides. I imagine, I hypothesize that including dating partners will further reduce intimate partner homicides. Professor Kennedy, what do you think are some of the limitations of this provision? So some of the limitations include uh, the fact that um, in the provision that was passed, uh, the dating partner definition only applies to current or recent former dating partners. So it wouldn't include someone uh, who you dated some time ago, and there's some degree of subjectivity around what a recent former dating partner is um, that might lead to some sort of leaving out some folks who should be included because it's important to keep in mind just because a relationship ends doesn't mean that the power and control efforts stop. Um, The dating definition also focuses on the length of the relationship, the nature of the relationship, and the frequency and type of interaction, which also allows for some subjectivity to filter into those decisions about what kinds of dating relationships are included in the act. And again, as um, uh, Professor Zioli and Temple mentioned, this is a 
provision that only applies for five years. Um, and this five-year restoration provision only seems to apply to dating partners. And the law is not retroactive. So it doesn't include uh, misdemeanor domestic violent convictions that uh, affected dating partners before the act was enacted. So to be clear, current or recent when it comes to to dating partnerships, it's not clearly defined in this law. Yeah, I think you can say that. I think that's absolutely correct, that uh, the way in which the statute has been amended allows whoever is making that decision, right, the judge that's making that decision, some degree of discretion and subjectivity about how to apply the dating relationship definition. Professor Zioli, briefly, what about you? What gaps do you see? I would like to see the dating partner loophole closed for domestic violence restraining order firearm restrictions. In my research, uh, I found that at the state level, when they add dating partners to those who can be restricted from having firearms for those domestic violence restraining orders, intimate partner homicide decreases. But the states that don't include dating partners saw no measurable decrease in intimate partner homicide. So getting those, getting that dating partner loophole closed for domestic violence restraining orders as well could be incredibly important. Research suggests it is. And that makes sense because when we're talking about convictions, we're talking about a decision by law enforcement to arrest, to take the case forward by you know the prosecuting attorney to make a charge. And it's a very long process in which, you know, at a lot of places, people can fall out of the system. But a domestic violence restraining order is initiated by the victim of the violence, and it can be initiated very quickly. So for someone who is in immediate danger, the restraining order is going to be much more important. I would have liked to see that loophole closed. Professor Zioli, this new provision requires that an abuser be convicted, but how many incidents of domestic violence go unreported? Recent statistics suggest that just a little less than half of domestic violence incidents go unreported, so about 48%. So that's a lot of incidents, and some of them involve very serious violence. What are some of the reasons why victims might not want to report? Many people find that the police are useless. They call them, nothing happens, there's no arrest, there's no charge. So they just don't call them again. Many other people are scared to call the police. They're afraid that their abuser will retaliate against them for calling the police. And they believe that because that's what their abuser has told them. And they've learned to take the abuser's threats very seriously. So, you know, they'll try to protect themselves by not reaching out to the police. And still others are, you know, afraid of bias from the police, either sexism, homophobism, uh, you know, bias against a religious group, racism. And so they'll try to leave the authorities out of it. Professor Kennedy, in order to pass this provision, Congress had to define dating. What definition did they settle on? So 
So what the uh, what Congress did was define dating as um, someone who is currently or recently uh, dating a person uh, based on the length of the relationship, the nature of the relationship, uh, and the frequency and type of interaction. Uh, Congress excluded casual acquaintances or what they call ordinary fraternization in a business or social context. Um, so it seems very much focused on intimate relationships. They don't specifically require a sexual relationship, but the de- definition seems to be focused on a, a kind of intimate romantic relationship. Do you think that definition is is sufficient? I think it's too narrow. Um, I think that uh, people are uh, affected by relationships that may not fall into this particular definition, but still may be subject to uh, controlling behavior, stalking behavior, harassing behavior, even though uh, they may not be in a romantic relationship, they may have more of a social relationship. Um, Additionally, it leaves out elderly people who may be abused by family members who are not intimate partners. Um, And so I think the definition is is too narrow. Professor Temple, a lot of your work is around teen dating violence. How should we expand or update our understanding of, of dating and relationships, especially for young people, for these laws to be relevant? Yeah, I mean, I, I would I agree with the other two guests that we need to uh, expand this definition of what it means to be in a dating relationship. Oftentimes, especially with adolescents, a relationship is fleeting. It might only be a day or a week, and and so I do think we need to broaden this definition to to include a, a briefer relationships. I also think you know one of the one of the biggest predictors of gun violence in these relationships is stalking. And oftentimes, stalkers never dated their their significant other, or their the person, the victim, and uh, uh, and so I think we're missing out on there. Uh, and I and I want to go back, if you'll allow me, to go back to something that uh, Dr. Zioli mentioned about why women don't report. You know, physical abuse doesn't occur in a vacuum. So 100% of women who are physically abused are also psychologically abused. And part of that psychological abuse is to uh, make the person feel like they're worthless and useless and can't reach out and all the while alienating them from their support. So, you know, it's it's difficult for these women to to get to that point of, of making a call to the police or reporting it. Well, and Professor Zioli, when we're talking about how abuse is defined in this law, is it limited to physical abuse? Because as we just heard there from Professor Temple, there's also psychological abuse, there's financial abuse. How broad is the definition? So the definition, and uh, correct me if I'm I'm wrong, um, Dr. Kennedy, the the definition is focused on physical harm, so threat or intent or actual physical harm. It does not include any of the other myriad you know types of harms, like stalking, psychological abuse, financial abuse, you know, um, isolation. There are many, many, many tactics. Uh, that intimate partners use to control and harm their the person they purport to love, but this law does focus on physical. 
Shakti tweets, it doesn't close the loophole, it just narrows it. And I'm curious to hear your reaction to that, uh, Professor Zioli, and especially in light of what we just heard from Professor Temple there. Yeah, there is, I, I absolutely agree with this. Um, it doesn't absolutely close that loophole for uh, misdemeanor convictions of domestic violence. And one of those reasons is that vagueness in that dating partner definition where, you know, somebody gets to interpret what length of relationship constitutes a dating partner and somebody gets to interpret whether this relationship was intimate enough. And so there are people who are going to be missed. But I do want to echo Dr. Temple's uh, statement that I'm actually thrilled that this law was passed. So it will save lives. Well, we're hearing from lots of you this hour. Mary emails, I had an ex-boyfriend stalk me after I left him for sexual assault. He was a gun enthusiast. I filed a restraining order, but he knew where I lived. He would leave bullet casings on my car windshield wipers when I slept. I had to move three times before he stopped. I have no idea why gun enthusiasts are interested in retaining gun rights for people like this man. What do we know about support for closing the the boyfriend loophole. Professor Kennedy? Yeah, so I think that there was significant support for closing the loophole, certainly among domestic violence advocates, among Democrats. And I think as been mentioned, uh, there still is resistance to closing the loophole or continuing to provide protections for victims of domestic violence and removing guns and forcing relinquishment of guns from Uh, abusers from Republicans and from the NRA. And I think as Professor Temple has mentioned, I I think that's grounded in concerns about um, what is perceived as Second Amendment rights um, and the right to for anyone to keep and, and bear guns. Now, a 2017 study found that black women are murdered at twice the rate of white women. And as we mentioned, this measure requires the abuser to be convicted of a, of a crime. Professor Kennedy, how do racial disparities complicate the picture around some domestic violence solutions? So the racial disparities in the criminal justice system um, affect, I think, a victim's willingness to come forward or a survivor's willingness to come forward and interact with the police. I think that there are well-grounded fears about how the police will respond uh, when called out to a marginalized community, to a black and brown community. I think there's concern about prosecutor discretion um, and who gets charged, how they get charged, and whether people of color are being overcharged while others are being undercharged. There's concern about longer sentences. I think many people don't see African-American women as the prototypical victim of domestic violence, particularly if they've used um, self-help to defend themselves. And I think there's concern about dual arrests, um, concern about victims uh, or survivors of domestic violence being arrested uh, alongside or instead of the, the abuser. And Professor Temple, you study violence on all levels, interpersonal, community, and structural. What connections do you see between dating violence and gun violence in both neighborhood shootings and mass shootings? 
there is absolutely a connection uh, between everyday sort of gun violence with uh, uh, with respect to family violence, uh, and we know that poverty is a is a huge risk factor for both violence and gun violence. And uh, and going back to what Professor Kennedy said is uh, when we look at some of these national laws and the subjectivity to them and how. Uh, Different laws are implemented against people of different races. You, you know, we we live in uh, uh, racist systems, and so when that subjectivity is allowed, it's going to be harsher puni- punishments against black and brown people, and lighter punishments against against white people. But to your point, uh, we know that uh, uh, you know uh, if you if you lack affordable, safe housing, if you lack child care. If uh, you lack livable wages, uh, we know that that, and it's not condoning it, but we know that that increases the risk of, of both violence perpetration and victimization. We're discussing the latest on the bipartisan gun bill. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. And remember to join future conversations. Download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back to our conversation with this message we got from TJ and a warning that this clip mentions suicide. I grew up in Colorado where guns were very prevalent. Um, about 15 years ago, my father loaded a gun with shells that he had actually loaded himself and shot himself, obviously killed himself. I grew up in a family where he routinely um, threatened gun violence with all of us. And as a kid, I recall seeing him get out of a car with a gun in his hand when he was angry in traffic. Um, we had had visits to the house from the police who never actually took him in and never arrested him. He never hit the radar um, officially as anybody who was a threat, even though we knew that he was. Uh, red flag laws could have prevented this, but then it's hard to say whether or not he would have actually um, been tagged as a red flag law incident. Professor Temple, how common is TGA's story? And TJ, thank you for sharing that with us, uh, where violence that doesn't result in a conviction allows abusers to fall through the cracks? Exceedingly, alarmingly common. Uh, You know, someone was talking about earlier about the police having difficulty with the police when they're called. You know, oftentimes it's it's especially in rural communities where the police are uh, not not on the same terms with the prosecutor's office and vice versa. And so, uh, you know, if these domestic violence cases are not getting prosecuted, then the police often say, well, what's the point of, of making an arrest? So, so it's, a, it's a systemic issue, and we're, we're actually doing research in rural counties throughout Texas where we're uh, having a coordinated community response, where we're having uh, a women's advocate in the county work with the prosecutor, work with the police, and so that we make sure that victims are given the services that they need and perpetrators are held accountable. And now with this law, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get guns, uh, uh, prevent these folks from having guns. Professor Zioli, some states had already implemented laws to close the boyfriend loophole. What have we seen happening on the state level? States actually change their laws much more frequently than than the federal level. So when people say things like, oh, the laws will never change, the government doesn't do anything, look to your state because things are happening there. Now, many states... um, I cannot give you the exact number at this moment, have closed that dating partner loophole in the misdemeanor domestic violence conviction firearm restriction. And 
many more have closed that loophole for the domestic violence restraining order firearm restriction. And when they close it for the domestic violence restraining order firearm restriction, my research showed a decrease in intimate partner homicide. Right now, we don't have any research that has specifically looked at closing that loophole in the misdemeanor conviction law, but hopefully we'll have that soon. Here's a tweet we got from Tristan who says, my ex-wife was psychologically abusive and was in the process of applying for a pistol permit. Male and other gendered victims and psychological abuse are often left out of these conversations. And Professor Temple, when you when you think about the closure of the so-called boyfriend loophole, but you also think about intimate partner violence between same-sex couples or, as in Tristan's case, Tristan's ex-wife was abusing him. Do we need to think about this more expansively and perhaps work with law enforcement, work with people in the legal profession to to help them better understand the ways this can present itself um, that that may not be readily readily uh, noticeable or or to help them overcome their biases about how we think about domestic partner violence. Uh, absolutely, and I'm I'm glad Tristan tweeted that. Uh, you know, domestic violence is always going to be a woman's problem in the sense that they are the ones who get injured are more likely to be psychologically abused and sexually abused. But that doesn't mean that female to male violence isn't important. In fact, when I when we ignore female to male violence, I think we do a disservice to girls and women because most violent relationships are characterized by mutual violence, and uh, and violence begets violence. So one of the strongest predictors of victimization is perpetration. So when we ignore female to male violence, we're definitely doing a disservice. And so when my research in, in schools, and in fact, when we look at adolescent relationships, girls are overwhelmingly more likely to be physically violent toward their male partners than the reverse. Uh, keeping in mind that there's a lot of weird things with that. Uh, guys underreport or lie. Girls are more likely to overreport, but it's still there. And uh, so when we when our programs that are school based, they are universal and they talk about healthy relationships for both female to male, male to female, and same sex relationships. I want to go back to our inbox. This is Ian from Lakewood, Ohio. I think the recent bipartisan legislation is good, but uh, ultimately it'll probably not make much difference. Unfortunately, illegal guns start out as legal guns that get stolen from houses or someone falls on hard times and they sell them and they get sold again and again or the loopholes that exist. So the more guns that are out there, period, the more gun violence will be committed. And until that changes, nothing else will change. Ian's message echoes what we're hearing from a a lot of listeners. Another of you wrote, I'm glad there's something in the bill for domestic violence, but there's very little in it about actual guns. And Tabasco tweets, this mediocre measure that everyone is so excited about is just that, mediocre. How many people obtain guns illegally altogether and bypass the application process? This is nothing but a Band-Aid over a gushing wound. Conservatives threw society a bone to try to shut them up. Professor Temple, what are your thoughts about those comments? I mean, they're not wrong, uh, but it is going to save lives. It is an, it is an excellent first step in uh, increasing our uh, protections against uh, violence against women. Uh, so at the same time, you know, without universal background checks, uh, abusers can get their 
uh, weapons from unlicensed sellers, from uh, buying them through, you know, uh, friends, uh, you know, so it's not going to totally close this loophole or, or prevent every death, but it is going to help. It will definitely result in save lives, just as we saw with the uh, with the legislation for spouses, uh, that the Lautenberg Amendment that's been you know, since 1996, has saved lives. Professor Zioli, the boyfriend loophole isn't the only loophole where abusers can access firearms. There's the so-called Charleston loophole, and it means if a federal background check isn't completed in three days, applicants can move forward with buying a firearm. How effective is closing the boyfriend loophole without putting some of these other guardrails in place? Well, we know it will be effective because we have research suggesting when it's closed for domestic violence restraining orders that lives are saved. It would be more effective, however, if these other measures such as closing the Charleston loophole, making sure there are background checks and permit to purchase licensing laws so that we know that people who are purchasing guns are legally able to purchasing to purchase a gun closing those loopholes will just enhance the the effectiveness of closing the dating partner loophole and professor temple briefly i know you you have strong feelings about the necessity of background checks but if we still have this gap in reporting and convictions for domestic violence where where do background checks come in uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point. If if they're not being reported, then the background checks aren't going to do anything. But again, I think it's, it goes back to my earlier statement of not letting perfect be the enemy of good. So if we do have some measures, even if they're half measures, they're going to work and they're going to save lives. Well, Professor Zioli, you've said that this provision will mean nothing without proper implementation. So what are you watching for on that front? I wouldn't say it will mean nothing, um, you know, without proper imp- implementation. But you know, what I'm watching for is it, not only that um, dating partners get restricted under the law, but that any firearms that these people who are now restricted from having a gun already have are removed from their possession. In other words, if a person has a gun, and the court says, you can't have a gun anymore. If we don't have law enforcement uh, go and remove the guns they already own, then they're just by default going to be allowed to keep their guns. And that doesn't increase anyone's safety. I will end on this email from Toby, who says, thank you for covering this. I was married to someone for over two decades who was abusive in many ways, financially, verbally, emotionally. At the end of our marriage, he tried to kill me. I had to get an emergency order of protection. He had two firearms that were not registered with the state. The judge knew, the serving officer knew, yet they allowed him to keep them. I constantly lived in fear. Too many women are killed because of this loophole. It's about time this changed. 
We've been talking to April Zioli. She's an associate professor in criminal justice at Michigan State University. She's also an expert on policy interventions for firearm use and intimate partner violence. Also with us, Jeff Temple. He's a licensed psychologist and the founding director of the Center for Violence Prevention at the University of Texas Medical Branch. And Desiree Kennedy. She's a professor of law at the Toro University Law Center. She's also a co-author of the seminal treatise on New York domestic violence law. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame with help from Mia Estrada. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Now let's talk more soon. This is 1A.